0: You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net. I'm speaking today with Det Strefus, Associate Professor of Media and Cultural Studies at Indiana University. His research focuses on media history, theory and criticism, cultural studies, media industries and institutions, and the philosophy of communication and culture. I'm going to ask him some questions on his approach towards researching books, on his publishing practices and on the future of cultural studies and cultural politics. To start with the first question. So I was wondering, uh, in what way have you seen your research practice over the years change, or not, in your interaction with new media and digital tools? I'm thinking of your use of blogs, and not just the publication of articles and print on paper academic journals, and even wikis.
1: Sure. Well, first, thank you for the interview, Janneke. It's a pleasure to, to do this with you. Um, I mean, my research definitely has changed in the last 15 years or so, and most significantly just in the types of sources that I access so just in the practical nuts and bolts end of things I you know used to spend a lot of time reading print periodicals and and, and magazines and those kinds of things and you know increasingly a lot of what I look at are online sources or sources that used to be you know in print form and have mm-hmm. been digitized so just you know in a very kind of straightforward way the the objects of study or the objects of reference have you know just, transform their form in significant ways. Let's not say so that I don't access the the old print-on-paper stuff, but it has become significantly less a source of, of what I go to. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, then what I like to do is if there are questions that arise in the research, then, you know, what I will often do is seek out print-on-paper sources mm-hmm. as a way of, you know, corroborating evidence or, or those kinds of things, because I don't entirely, you know, trust online sources, but I also don't entirely trust, you know, print-on-paper sources either, so for whatever that's worth. Um, you know, but increasingly also, then, what that means is that the sources of, of knowledge that, you know, are coming to us have also transformed, so it's not only about looking at... You know major periodicals or even academic journals anymore but you know there are as you say you know blogs and wikis yeah. and all sorts of things and you know I mean as a as a researcher if nothing else it does make both the the practice of my own research but then also then the teaching of research a lot more challenging because you know the question of evaluating the quality of sources and knowing how to treat sources that may not necessarily be the most trusted within one's research. You know, it comes up time and again. I'll just give you one example of this. Um, in an essay that I'm working on, the one on algorithmic culture, um, you know, there are reports about an individual who was a hacker, who um, you know played some you know tricks supposedly on an Amazon.com website, mm-hmm. and in fact, it didn't end up happening. But one of the things that happens if you go to this hacker's website is that you are invited into the website, but it's also not clear if you go to the website, will you get malware on your site, or on, you know, on your own computer. And, you know, so, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, new kinds of things that come up as an academic researcher, particularly someone now who's kind of moving in the direction of some work on new media, you know, that... are are things that I never would have anticipated, you know? And and so I think there's a whole new set of challenges that are arising as a result of the increased movement towards digital tools. But I mean, again, the injunction for me in my own research then, is you know not to go all in in any one medium, you know, and not to commit myself strictly to digital sources, or even then to become a paper fetishist, but to try to find productive ways wherever possible to try to navigate you know the different media that we increasingly find in the course of our research.
0: So, in what way do you then think that your own development in this respect is, is is exemplary for changing research practices within the humanities or within cultural studies as a whole?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like to play, I guess, is mm-hmm. mainly the big thing at this point. And, you know, I've published most of my work in traditional venues, but as, as you know, and maybe some of your listeners know, you know, I have also tried to do things like, you know, become a fairly regular blogger, although unfortunately my blogging has followed fallen off, but that's just because I have a small child who takes a lot of my time now. Um, you know, but also doing things like posting um, working papers on wiki sites and allowing them to be you know, open to others, you know, transforming the work that I I may have started. And, you know, I I can't say that any one of those has been a resounding success. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not to say that they've been failures, but not, you know, huge glorified successes. So in that sense, I would be reluctant to call them exemplary. But, you know, to me, the spirit of what I try to do, I think, might be more the better example. And that is Mm -hmm. to not, or to... To not let oneself become too comfortable mm-hmm. with the way that things are in terms of modes of academic expression, forms of academic expression, means of academic expression. You know, and to just continually ask questions. You know, one, are our means of academic production up to the task of actually producing and distributing the kind of knowledge that you know, we should be producing and distributing today? Um, and then if not, you know, what do we need to do to transform that? And you know, I think to me one of the most difficult challenges of publishing as a, as a scholar, whether as a graduate student or as um, a university professor, is you know, to, to see a path of least resistance before you, and that is, you know, the traditional kind of venues of academic publishing, you know, and it's a path of least resistance, make no mistake about that, and, you know, there are some times when I think it, you know, is very intelligent to take that path of least resistance for purposes of preserving one's job, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, but what that also means is that I think it's incumbent upon us to think about what we lose when we take about that, when we take that path, and then related to that, what can we do to actually make a different one? Um, and to not just think that intellectual production is simply about content, but it's also about producing forms as well.
0: So what advice would you give to any early career scholars who are just starting out regarding the use of digital media tools and platforms? So would you encourage them to follow your lead or would you encourage them to do something different?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I... I, In general, I would say I probably err on the side of caution. Mm. Um, And that's just... Me. I mean I, I don't know. But I mean by the same token I don't err on the side of absolute caution as, as you know. And so what that means then is that I do what I understand to be necessary to achieve the goals that I wish to achieve. So, you know, until recently I was an untenured assistant professor mm-hmm. at a US university. Who really wanted to get tenure, so I wouldn't lose my job and wouldn't lose my income and wouldn't lose my healthcare insurance. So, you know, what does it take to get there? Well, I have to publish a book and I have to publish some well-placed articles, um, in mostly corporately owned, which are the well-regarded journals in my field. Um, and so I did that. You know, but what I also did, because I have a you know fairly good sense, I suppose, of the politics of academic publishing, both book and journal. Is that I tried to do work on the side. Then you know that may count; it may not count. Um, but that is work that I think tries to, in some ways, make the types of interventions, um, you know, experiments with new media, trying to do you know experimental forms of writing, trying to do less traditional forms of academic expression via blogs and those kinds of things. Um, you know, to try to do those as a kind of side enterprise. That yes. for me, you know for who I am and for what I do was not a side enterprise at all, but I know institutionally mm-hmm. is considered to be on the side. And so what that means is, you know, I had to do more work. Yeah. Um, but it's work that I believe passionately yeah. in and it's work that I believe very strongly in. And so, you know, I was never under any illusion that it would count. But also it count you know institutionally. <laughs> but the other thing that I tried to do then um, was where possible to make the kinds of arguments that would justify the work that I'm doing, and and I'll give you one example of this. Um, The book that I published with Columbia University Press, Late Age of Print, I managed to negotiate the release of a PDF of that book for free online on my website, thelateageofprint.org. When it came time for me to apply for tenure, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to mention that in the statement that I had to put forth for tenure institutionally. You know, and I was advised by some not to do that, and ultimately I did decide to do that and use that as an occasion to justify um, you know, not only why I did it, but why it was important both um, in terms of my own kinds of commitments as a scholar, but also then as a scholar of book history. Yeah why that was important for me to do as well, relative to the larger kinds of things that I know about the book industry and and its operations and intellectual property and so forth. So, you know, I I don't know exactly if that's advice per se, um, except that it is, you know, do what you need to do to achieve your goals and then work really hard to do the things that you believe passionately in and then figure out ways to bring those two together, because they can be brought together, especially if you have the kind of institutional credibility and authority that you've built over a series of years to be able to do that.
0: So one of your aims, as described in one of your working papers, is to perform scholarly communication differently, so to expand its repertoire, to make room for new practices. And part of your intention to do this is clearly exemplified in your experiments with communicating and publishing your research in other, more alternative ways. So using blogs and wikis and opening up your work for user comments and for crowd editing. Um, And furthermore, you are also a proponent of new ways of publishing. And your book, The Late Age of Print, is, for instance, freely downloadable in multiple formats from the internet. As she said, we need to actively interact with and change our institutions and practices as part of our cultural politics and as part of our cultural research. So, two aspects of this approach seem to be a bit problematic or challenging to me. So, first of all, how do you combine your interests in this performing scholarly communication differently with the demand to satisfy more conventional institutional requirements that are needed to secure things like employment, promotion, funding, tenure and so on. What has your strategy been as far as operating within the academic institution is concerned? Secondly, um, as you are well aware of, there are many challenges to trying to change an institution from the inside out. So, in one of your working papers, you write about the failure of the Shakespeare Quarterly Open Peer Review Experiment. Where you state that, and I quote, beyond the fact that the editors still ultimately determined which essays would be published, the majority of those providing commentary were very established senior scholars, whose presence reportedly silenced some of their junior colleagues. So trying to change the institution from the inside out might just lead to practices repeating itself. So to really change our institution, shouldn't we step outside of them and shouldn't we try and set up alternative structures from the ground up? So think, for instance, of alternative sites for often online learning and debating, such as networks of schools that were set up by the public school, or the growing groups of alternative, open or other universities that have been established as a response to the budget cuts in the UK. Or, for instance, file-sharing sites such as Ark shouldn't we perhaps radically break down old institutions and replace them with new ones? Is it possible to really create new practices when we are still so much involved in the old ones?
1: Yeah, this I mean, this is a very difficult mm. question, to be honest with you. And, and it's a difficult question because, I mean, I think it's, you know, couched within, you know, the very complex problematics of being an insider or being an outsider mm. and what, being an insider may get you and what it may diminish for you and 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 vice versa as far as being an outsider goes and you know my my general feeling is that i'm a pragmatist Mm -hmm. um and i mean that in the sense that you know what allows me to achieve the ends that I would like to achieve um, typically are the ones that I find to be the most beneficial in the long run, mm-hmm. um, and so in that sense, you know, I'm not necessarily someone who is committed, you know, whole cloth to institutions and institutionalization. But by the same token, what that means. Is that I'm also not someone who's committed to being, you know, an outsider and, you know, getting rid of the institutions or trying to overthrow them or creating these alternative spaces. But, you know, for me, it's always a question of, you know, what's going to work best for the most people. Um, you know, so in, in that sense, what I would probably want to do is, you know, work. in in both capacities, I suppose, and I guess in some ways maybe I have, and the people that I try to associate myself with have. I mean, as you well know, like, you know, Gary Hall's work, you work with Gary Hall, and all of the great stuff that he's done with the Open Humanities Press Initiative and more specifically with Culture Machine. I mean, that's, you know, not something that exists within the institutionalized space of academic journal publishing. And it's extraordinary, and it has done amazing things both in terms of provoking my own thinking about the possibilities of academic journals and journal publishing. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it has also caught the attention of people like Taylor and Francis and Sage and those kinds of things. So, you know, to me what is also intriguing then is the kinds of, you know, dialogues that emerge both explicitly and implicitly between, you know, formalized Established institutions, whether they're corporations or universities, and then you know entities that may form outside them. I mean, it's it is always interesting to ask oneself too. You know, what is an institution? You know, I mean, I, I would argue probably that something like Culture Machine, which has been around now for you know, twelve or thirteen mm-hmm. years, you know, I mean, that's a pretty well established institutionalized thing. You know, um, you know, so to what extent one can call that you know an outsider institution yeah. i, I don 't know or an alternative it's certainly an alternative space because it is not the you know mainstream of, of academic publishing, whether in cultural studies or otherwise, yeah, yeah. but you know it certainly has a very strong identity and presence and so yeah I mean I guess i, I wouldn 't necessarily come down on one side, but I will say you know just as a, as a kind of addendum to this that at the end of the day. You know, I am probably more a reformist than a radical, yeah. um, and and perhaps that's to admit to too much. But you know, I you know I believe in the mission of of universities, you know, and 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 that they don't necessarily have to be taken over or torn yeah. down or whatever, but they do need to be transformed yeah. in significant ways. Just as I believe academic publishing in its more traditional vein, you know there's some things that are actually quite good about it, but nevertheless, there are certain aspects that need to be transformed. And so you know, to improve our already existing institutions to make them better, it may not make them perfect, you know, but to also work with them to help them to do better rather than to give up on them from the beginning, yeah. you know, I think is also something that is, is worth our work most of the time, not all of the time, <laughs> yeah. but most of the time, um, you know, because if for no other reason, you know, they have been good to me also, yeah. you know, and and I, I don't disrespect the fact that Columbia University Press published my book. I mean, I think they did something. Well, they obviously did something fabulous for the world by putting my book out there. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, you know, just on a personal note, they did something fabulous for me. Yeah. I mean, they helped me to, you know say something that I thought was important to say and, and, and help to facilitate that. And so, you know, is that an institution that I would want to give up on? Absolutely not, you know, because they have supported me in ways. And so if I can, you know, help to support them in certain ways by, you know, helping them to think about how to distribute academic work differently or more innovatively or more creatively, you know, that to me sounds great. But that doesn't necessarily preclude then doing work in some other alternative space.
0: So, in current research on books and book history, there is a focus on the way books and ebooks are being used. This is visible, for instance, in studies on reading behavior and literacy skills, as well as in more psychosociologically oriented research, which concentrates, for instance, on the influence that our interactions with new reading technologies have on our cognitive and behavioral functions, such as, for instance, Nicholas Kahn's book The Shallows. So by contrast, in your book, The Late Age of Print, you also focus on the way we read, most prominently in the chapter on Oprah's Book Club. However, you depart from the way books are used to focus more on, and I quote from one of your footnotes, the technical, industrial and infrastructural conditions that shape the experience of ethnographic informants. So could you explain this approach more clearly? Why are you adopting this different approach to the subject?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for reading the footnotes. Um, I <laughs> wish more people did that because it would save me a lot of grief. But um, I, I guess I should probably provide a little bit of it, it's not so much backstory, it's just framing to the nature of the intervention of mm-hmm. the late age of print. And it is a very particular book, I think, in certain ways. And, and I say that because it is, you know, ostensibly about book culture in 20th century early 21st century in some ways, yeah. mostly America. Um, and so in terms of thinking about the existing research on the subject, um, you know, if there is such a subject, most of what I looked at kind of going into uh, what was first a dissertation project and then ultimately a book project that evolved over a series of um, not quite 10 years, but the better part of 10 years, um, what I saw were two primary ways in which to approach the object of books at that particular yeah. moment in that particular context. And one was mostly textual, mm-hmm. where you would do you know some form of literary criticism, mm-hmm. whether it was you know traditional um, you know kind of close reading or maybe some kind of deconstructive analysis or maybe some kind of um, you know critical analytical work of some sort or maybe something more historically inflected, but probably not if it was more contemporary. Um, the other thing that I saw a great deal of work on was ethnographic work. Yeah. And so that there was a tremendous amount of work on you know, readers and reading and reading yeah. practices and readership and things that people did with texts and textuality. But what had escaped a lot of that work on you know, late 20th, early 21st century books and book culture was anything about anything else, Mm -hmm. that there was very little written about the means of distributing books. There was very little written about the means of producing books, um, the nature of books as a textual object, which is very interesting from a book historical standpoint. Because if you know anything about book history, the kinds of questions that preoccupy historians of the book, and usually historians of the book leave off right at the end of the 19th century, Mm You know, they're concerned with, you know, not only reading practices and also with questions of, of textuality, but you know, they're interested in the development of typefaces. They're interested in how, you know, back in, you know, sixteenth century France you were able to ship a book from point A to point B. They're interested in the fact that, you know, back in the old days and the early days of the printing press, you know, books would get printed and then bound together so that you have multiple books in one volume. You know, so that you can take nothing for granted. Yeah in you know in, in the historical study of books. And so what I saw kind of emerging in you know what might fall under the rubric of book history mm-hmm. in the late twentieth, early twenty first century, if you can still call it book history, mm-hmm. I'd call it book history, but others might not, mm-hmm. you know, is in some ways a kind of forgetting of the subtlety of the questions that needed to be asked about books as a medium. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that arose because of the eclipsing of books in some ways or at least the perceived eclipsing of books by things like television increasingly the internet you know some people would say cinema radio i mean any number of media that became sort of prominent within the 20th century and so i think what sort of happened within at least fields like media studies and to some extent literary studies is that there was a kind of forgetting of the complexity of the object of books because they seemed like quaint you know 16th century, 15th century, you know, pre-modern media. Um, and so in the late age of print, I think what I wanted to do was to try to reopen those questions at this particular moment in this particular place and to sort of say, well, what is a book? Yeah. How does a book get from point A to point B? You know, what are the means by which we are able to interact with books and you know how is that maybe transforming in ways that we don't even realize. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily to say that questions about um, you know readership that might arise within an ethnographic study, or questions about textuality and close reading and meaning were unimportant, but that I felt like those had been, you know, so well traversed um, that I didn't have anything meaningful that I could bring for the most part at that point and so I wanted to raise different kinds of questions trying to draw on what I knew about book history you know as again as a way of trying to tell a somewhat different story about books in that particular historical moment Um, because that's the other thing that we always sort of hear too and that is you know oh well books are on the decline you know books are you know secondary or residual media and in fact you know what emerges I think out of the late age of print is the extent to which on the one hand you know books were and continue to be a very significant medium for the transmission and preservation of information um, and for the you know, ritual construction of you know, meaning and culture and all sorts of things. But beyond that, that their history intersects in really weird and interesting ways with that of computer technology, that of, his, uh, that of television, that of radio, and, and any number of other forms of, of media or information technologies. and that You know, to write the history of books back into that complex history of media was another intervention that I was trying to make as well, that you couldn't necessarily write a history of books independent of all of those other things, and vice versa. Then,
0: So, as you describe in your book, The Late Age of Print, we're living in a period of transition. The Late Age of Print, as you describe it, encompasses both dominant and emergent values, practices, and worldviews. You describe how the present constitutions of ebooks is very much embedded within a continued structure of consumer capitalism, albeit one that, as you state, is shifting to a society of controlled consumption. In what way, then, do you see the present time as a potential paradigm shift, as the beginning of something new? Are we experiencing a breaking point, in your opinion, or just a continuation of current practices, embedded as we are within this capitalist paradigm? So without falling too much into a theological trap, under which conditions will the late age of print turn into the dawn of the digital? And will this necessarily be accompanied by a further expansion of capitalism's monitoring and control mechanisms?
1: Yeah, no, well, the, the, the last part of the question is easy, and mm-hmm. that is yes. Okay. <laughs> um, the rest of it is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess in some ways what's probably needed is a little bit of um, historical backstory or... And, and, and I don't mean that as history backstory, but I mean the the nature of the work underpinning the late age of yeah. print, so my own kind of um, intellectual biography. And um, When I was writing the late age of print, yeah. uh, first as a dissertation and then eventually as a book, one of the things that it took me a great deal of time to do was to find the story. Yeah. Um, and so the first version of it, the dissertation version, is... A series of very loosely interconnected chapters that um, I, I still owe my dissertation committee a great deal of thanks for you know, saying was was sufficiently passable as a dissertation and and you know they said many other good things about it as well, but in any case, thank you dissertation committee. Um, but what that meant then is that when I got to the point of the book, I mean I had to figure out what the story was. Um, And it took me a long time to figure that out, but I had the good fortune of reading a fair amount of the work of Raymond Williams during Mm -hmm. that time, someone whose work I have long admired. But um, for some reason, I just kind of felt that he might have some of the answers. Because I think I knew intuitively when I started the project that it was in part a conceptual problem mm-hmm. to figure out what the story was. Because I knew in my mind that, you know, somehow Oprah Winfrey and her book club and eBooks and Amazon.com and big box bookstores and Harry Potter, they all had something to do with one another. And I and I believe that they they do not just because I say they do, but I mean, you know, they all emerged at more or less the same moment yeah. in history in, in the United States. So I mean there's something happening there. You know, so how do you get at that something? And, and, you know, in Williams, I thought there might be some of the resources to be able to get at that. And um, what most really kind of impressed itself upon me was his philosophy of history. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's exactly a philosophy as much as a framework, but in any case, you know, call it what you will. Um, in Marxism and literature, he develops the idea of, you know, dominant, residual, and emergent cultural yeah. forms. And what's interesting is that a lot of people read those three categories. I I, I kind of mix them up, residual, dominant, and emergent, as in some ways mapping on to past, present, and future. And, And I think they do. I think that's a legitimate reading of the work. But what the subtlety of Williams is, is to say that, in fact, all three of those coexist simultaneously in the present. So that when we are in our present moment, mm-hmm. you know, we are essentially living three—at least three—overlapping temporalities. That we are living our inheritance from the past, we are living the contemporary moment as it has been constituted, and then we are already kind of experiencing some kinds of forces that are transforming the the, the ways of of life and knowing and so forth. That we have come to experience as you know dominant or normal or hegemonic or whatever you care to call it. Um, and and in that was my way of starting to think about the late age of print. Because what I ultimately was ultimately was trying to kind of get at both in that project and then you know I think more specifically with respect to the question that you've asked here is to begin to think about you know, the present as multiply constituted. And so what I like to think about then is that we are constantly living in a period of, at minimum, permanence and change. And that when we talk about books, usually we kind of hear two things. You know, we, hear, we we either hear about permanence, like, oh, books are great and they're wonderful, and you know they'll be around forever because they are this you know fantastic technology. They deliver information better than anything, honed over 500 years of the history of printing, and so on and so forth. Um, which I think is probably a minority opinion at this point, but nevertheless, you do hear that. And then what you often hear is the kind of change end of things, which is, oh well, books are on the decline; they're being eclipsed by media that are, you know, digital and flashier and faster, and you know, you know, whatever. Um, and I wanted to say that, in fact, you know, if we want to really understand. Books at this particular moment, or media, you know, in general, or anything at this particular historical moment, we can't go to either one of those poles, but we have to understand, in fact, the way in which they kind of mash up against one another, and that, you know, we live in a moment where books are undeniably transforming, and in fact, you know, since I wrote the late age of print, you know, I finished the manuscript basically in two thousand and eight, um, and and most of it was written in two thousand and seven. Um, you know, I mean, so much has changed in the world of books. I mean, we have you know, Kindle emerging from yeah. Amazon.com and becoming a, a pretty central device. Um, you know, iPads and tablet readers and those kinds of things multiplying. I just heard Google has released an e-reading mm-hmm. device. And, you know, if nothing else, there's a huge pressure from people who have a tremendous control of yeah, the yeah. means of distribution of books now. Um, exercising a certain kind of command of, of the form of the book, which I do think has to be taken seriously. Much as in the late age of print, I did not take it seriously because those developments had not happened. I pretty much said, you know, ebooks are never going to happen, really, and, and I was wrong about that. Um, but in any case, um, what I also, you know, you know with all of that under our belts then i don't believe you know that printed books are going to go away at all but i mean you know there's no denying that what gets printed you know what gets published is is going to transform i mean if nothing else i would be shocked if in 15 to 20 years Many academic books, which tend to not sell a lot of copies, you know, will be released, you know, mostly in electronic form. And you know, that'll be much to the chagrin of me and many of my colleagues who still like paper objects. But in any case, and, and I think we can anticipate other types of changes throughout the book industry as well. So for me, it's always about thinking about the nature of the relationship yeah, you know. between continuity and change and not going to one extreme end of the spectrum, but to recognize, you know as much as people want to say, oh, you know, change is inevitable, change is going to happen, sure, right? But, you know, we never throw anything out altogether. I mean, even, you know, something as old-fashioned as the telegraph, you know, it doesn't really exist as a medium per se, but it exists in media that we regularly utilize. I mean, every time you transfer money, you know, wire transfer money from one bank to another, I mean, that is premised on the legacy of the telegraph. The internet, in some ways, is, you know, modeled on, you know, the, the structure of the telegraph. And so, you know, I mean, things persist even in ways we may not realize. Or get
0: reinvented. Yeah, or get reinvented,
1: exactly, or grafted onto or any number of things. And I think books are no exception to that.
0: Correct, right, really clear. Thank you for the interview. Thank you, Janneke.
1: This Thank was great. You. Thank
0: you. You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open-access electronic journal, Culture Machine, visit w